If you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15, please. 
What I want us to see this morning is the implication that's contained within this text, particularly in verse 12, which reads, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I want you to think about this this verse for just a second and think about what is implied here. What is implied? Well, the text clearly implies that there were church members at Corinth who believed that there was some value in the practice and pursuit of Christianity even if there were no promise of benefits beyond this life. There were church members there who saw value in practicing what they practiced even though they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. It makes me think of a contemporary song that was in Christian contemporary music. When do Christian contemporary songs stop being contemporary? I was thinking about this. About... Ten years before they're written, I think, is when they, when they stop. That's unfortunately true sometimes. Some of you followed that. But I was thinking about this contemporary Christian song that was playing about 30 years ago, and the words of the song, or some of the words of the song, went like this, and if you're familiar with it, you remember probably. If heaven never was promised to me, neither the chance to live eternally, It's been worth just having the Lord in my life, living in a world of darkness, but He brought me the light. Do any of you remember that song? Wow. Although the words of this song sound very pious, I'm not sure Paul would have agreed with the sum of its text. For he says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But there were those in the Corinthian church who held this view. Although this no resurrection theology in 1 Corinthians was new to the church that had recently been established by Jesus and was being built upon the apostles, this was not new to the people through whom the church came and with whom God had previously covenanted using Moses. And who is that people? That is the Jews. This was not new to them. During the time of Christ, there were two rival authorities vying for power in Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you look up in uh, the Unger's Bible Dictionary and you read about them a little bit, I'm going to quote you a little bit about, particularly if you'll pay attention to what's said about the Sadducees. It says that the Sadducean aristocracy was able to keep at the helm in politics. And the price at which the Sadducees had to secure themselves power at this later period was indeed a high one. For they were in their official actions to accommodate themselves to the Pharisaic views. Now, although not all the... At the time, most of the Pharisees were were scribes and teachers and they taught in the synagogues. And it says, although not all Pharisees were scribes, the vast majority of the scribes were Pharisees and they regulated the synagogues teaching and interpreting the law. The Pharisees were solidly devoted to the daily application and observance of the Mosaic Law and the Oral Law, known as the Oral Torah. The Sadducees had very different beliefs from the Pharisees. They denied the resurrection of the dead, as well as the existence of spirit beings, 
The Sadducees believed, according to the teachings of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, that the soul dies with the body. Therefore, they taught that there were no rewards or punishments after death. The Sadducees had a deistic view of God. They saw him as uninterested in human affairs and therefore unwilling to intervene. Regarding their views on the resurrection, Jesus issued a strong denunciation, telling them that they were wrong because they did not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now, the average Jew rejected the teachings of the Sadducees, and they had very little support among the common people. While some scholars have interpreted these beliefs as a conservative effort by the Sadducees to resist religious innovations by the Pharisees, Jesus' teachings were clearly much closer to those of the Pharisees than the Sadducees, particularly on the, in the area of the resurrection. It's more likely that the doctrines of the Sadducees simply represented a corrupt elite's attempt to minimize the impact of religion on their secular lives. What is interesting about this history of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees controlled the positions of authority on the local level. They were the primary teachers in the synagogues, and they believed in the resurrection. And even though the Sadducees denied the supernatural, particularly the resurrection, they came to the top of the heap politically. Why? How? And why? Well, how is that they used the conservatism of the Pharisees to gain acceptability with the people. They used the Pharisees' language somewhat to gain acceptability with the people. The Pharisees used power to control morality because they were self-righteous and thought that their morality would gain them acceptance by God. Morality was their confidence and comfort. But the Sadducees were different. The Sadducees used morality to control the power because with the power they could maintain their comfort, their standard of living. They could maintain their level of self-indulgence. Power was their confidence and comfort. This should all sound very familiar to us. Think of all those hopeful political candidates that you've heard quoting Scripture while they were promoting themselves for office. Have you ever heard that? Quite often. Quite regularly. Using religious jargon for political expediency is nothing new. The Sadducees were masters of it. But personally, they denied the power of God. In society and in the church today, many use morality to control power because with power they can maintain their comfort. Well, you can ask now, well, what does not believing in the resurrection of the dead have to do with the church today? I mean, everybody I know, they all believe in the resurrection from the dead. Well, I'm going to challenge us on this. We, like the Sadducees, love earthly comforts. And these comforts seduce us and lull our minds into forgetting matters of true importance. What then becomes important to us is the maintenance of our earthly comforts. We are easily seduced by this. Believing in the resurrection of the dead is demonstrated through more than just a verbal confession. It requires more than just saying, well, yeah, I believe in the resurrection from the dead. 
Colossians 3, verse 1 and following. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Those who have been raised with Christ, true believers, have an awareness. Indeed, they are seeking the things that are above. You can't set your mind on things that are above if you do not believe in them, obviously. But you could put this verse another way. You could say that the mind that is not seeking for the things above is a mind that exists in a son of disobedience. What profit is there in saying you believe in the resurrection while having no desire for the application of its power to your life? Paul was very familiar with the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you may recall at one point in Acts chapter 23 when he was you know, hauled into a, a room for uh, being questioned and uh, being accused legally by the uh, religious leaders. I can't remember right now where it was. I'm sorry. I know it was in Acts chapter 23, but I can't remember the city. Was that in Jerusalem where he was questioned? Yeah. You're always pretty safe if you say Jerusalem. Paul was hauled into, into, in front of the leaders and he was being accused. And what he said to them was, I'm, I'm being accused today. I'm, I'm here today because of the hope I have in the resurrection. Well, he knew that there were Sadducees and Pharisees in that room and he knew that this would cause a great tumult. But what Paul wanted to happen is that he wanted to have an opportunity to speak to the higher political authorities and he knew that this would be a great opportunity to do that. He'd have not only a chance to speak to these people, but it would probably escalate and give him even more opportunity. And so he did, in fact, speak to those authorities. He got a chance to speak before the leaders, the uh, political leaders of the time. Do you know what he talked to them about? Taxation? The death penalty? Universal health care? What did Paul talk to them about? Well, when he was talking with Felix and Drusilla, he was discussing righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. This is what he talked about in his big opportunity. Things very connected with eternal realities that Felix and Drusilla and in fact all of us will face. Later when he was able to talk to Festus and Agrippa and Bernice in Acts chapter 26, 
He gave his testimony and he talked about God, how God had saved him from his own persecution of the church. And then he talked about Jesus' words concerning the forgiveness of sins and the inheritance that, the inheritance that those have who have been sanctified by faith. What else did he talk with him about? He talked with him about the resurrection from the dead and how it was his responsibility to proclaim this to the Jews and to the Gentiles that Jesus was raised from the dead. And as he's talking to them, what does Festus say? He says, Paul, all of your learning has driven you mad. How can you talk about such things? They're so otherworldly. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. I utter words of sober truth. And he turned to Agrippa and he said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa was saying, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Why didn't Paul argue for lower taxation? Why didn't he argue for the removal of the death penalty or the capital gains tax or universal health care or stricter laws on governing medical privacy, which are driving me crazy? Do you think Paul held positions about these things? I think he did. But there were greater matters matters concerning things above that occupied his mind. Paul's themes to these political figures were the kingdom of God and the power of God and the resurrection and the judgment that was certain and forgiveness of sins and righteousness and repentance from our sins. These are the themes that are supposed to have supremacy in the thoughts and hearts of God's saints. These are the themes of a people who are looking for the glorious present and future reality that we await, that we have. And it's not the theme of people who would settle for the sorry substitute that we're so often content with on this earth. C.S. Lewis said that we are too easily happy playing in the mud hole when a beautiful holiday at the beach is available to us. If you're ever at a loss for something to say to your co-workers, why don't you try those subjects out? Why don't you try out the kingdom of God and the power of God, the resurrection, the judgment? would have a different kind of mood in the, the old office, wouldn't it? We had a guy at Frito-Lay when I worked there that was substantially larger than I am. So that's pretty large. His name was Keith. He was a great big black ex-football player. And Keith talked about these things all the time. And when Keith wasn't talking about them in the break room at work, he was downtown at the Commons in the park with, with these pictures laying on the ground in front of him preaching. And the pictures were people writhing in the flames of hell. 
And that was Keith. But I'll tell you what, his mind wasn't occupied with earthly things. Keith, Keith was only concerned, and you may debate about his methodology, you may debate about a lot of things with him, but he was only concerned was his love of God and the glory that awaited him and the glory that he wanted everyone to know. My premise this morning is simple. Confidence and comfort for us must only be sought in God. The the consequences of seeking any source of confidence or comfort outside of the Holy Trinity, outside of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the consequences will be disappointment and ruin and ungodliness. Again, I recognize that many people say that Christ has been raised from the dead. But many of these same people are slaves to their comforts. Their minds are set on things of of this earth. They are to be pitied. In Mark 10, Jesus has an encounter with a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler kneels before him and says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he, the young man, said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And he said, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were just scared, amazed, scared. How can anybody make it, they said. How could anybody get in? And Jesus says, Well, with man, this was not possible. But he said, with God, all things are possible. Well, we're all tempted like this rich young ruler. And what qualifies us to be tempted in this way? Well, first, we are all fallen sinners. And so, like him, we have the desire to find our comfort in our wealth and trust in it. And second, we're all rich. And if you don't think you're rich as an American, go anywhere else where you have to take a bus more than three hours to get to any place you want to go. And you'll see how very wealthy you actually are. So we're very rich. And just as no doubt this rich young ruler was familiar with the religious expediency used by the Pharisees, We're also familiar with the promise of the political leaders of protecting our comforts. We have the religious right, don't we? We have Rush Limbaugh, right? He protects us. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would say to Rush Limbaugh? Maybe we should get some shirts printed. WWJSTRL. This morning, I'm not so much concerned about what Jesus would say to Rush Limbaugh as I would be concerned about what Jesus would say to an avid Rush Limbaugh fan who was looking to those 
promises of politics to give comfort and confidence. If I were talking about the Pharisees, I'd be talking about the avid Dr. Laura fan. We look for comfort in politics. We can be so much like Israel was. Do you remember when Samuel was leading Israel? And they came to the Israelites came to him and they were clamoring to him, Samuel, give us a king. We want a king like all the other nations have a king. And what did Samuel say? No, no, you don't you don't do this. This is wrong. God is your king. And finally, in going to the Lord, God said, Listen, Samuel, listen to them. Give them their king. He said, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being the king over them. When we trust and put our comfort in these political things, and I'm not saying that we should have no interest, and I'm not saying that we should have no involvement, but when we put our comfort and our trust and our confidence in whether or not this person gets into office or that person, or whether or not this thing passes or that thing, our trust and our confidence are not in God, and we've We've taken a new king for ourselves. We must find our confidence and our comfort in God. Now, I want to take this and make it really, really personal to Church of the Good Shepherd. And if you're here this morning and it's your first time visiting, I apologize. I ask you just to listen. I think you'll get something from it regardless. But I want to do just a little bit of housekeeping to those who are of the initiated, who've been around for a while. Those who know that we have signed a contract to sell this building. Those who know that that contract, or may not know, that that contract may actually see its closing this week. And probably most of you don't know that that would mean that our last Sunday in this building would be July the 18th. Which isn't very far away, is it? As we think about the possibility of leaving, and as we think about this building, most of us probably say, ah, I'm so tired of those bathrooms. But at the same time, there's a little bit of something in all of us, more in some, less in others. There's a little bit of something in all of us that says, That building was familiar to me. I didn't like the bathrooms, but I knew where they were. Right? Familiar things can be very comfortable. Very comfortable. Familiar facilities. Leaving this facility will be a little like, for us, a little like it was for Israel leaving Egypt with Moses. They marched out victoriously, but what happened before too long? And what could be the potential of happening to us? Well, before long, they were grumbling and saying, weren't those onions that we used to eat down by the Nile River delicious? Weren't those the best onions? Those were like Vidalias. Why in the world did we ever leave? Buildings are nice insofar as they serve their purpose. But if for the sake of the kingdom of God we spend a little time sojourning in 
the wilderness of rented facilities, okay, we need to seek confidence and comfort in God. We need to focus our hearts and our minds on the establishment of His kingdom here and forever. If we don't, what's going to happen? Oh, don't you remember those good old days when we used to eat the potlucks back by the wall in the back of the sanctuary? (laughs) Right? We laugh. But it is important. It's essential as we move forward. Facilities are familiar and can become comfortable to us. We need to find our comfort in God Programs are familiar. Well, you know, you may not like that your Sunday school class is two miles away at somebody's house. But you know how to get there. And they have that chair that you like to sit in. Well, our Sunday school and our morning services and our various meeting services may be structured differently. Maybe in a different location. And we're comfortable with our present classes and arrangement insofar as they're familiar to us. And change is so disruptive. Remember though, church, while permanent rooms and familiar programs are convenient, we must not have our hearts set on them for their comfort. You know, we would do very well to have the same desires of heart that control our fellow believers in other countries where just for a taste of the Word of God, they will walk for miles and they'll sit on a dirt floor and they'll risk imprisonment. That's how our hearts should be set. And you know, as I think about those people, do you know what I imagine, imagine? I imagine that their pastor is saying to them as they're sitting there on that floor, wondering if the police aren't going to burst in at, at some moment. I imagine that their pastor is saying to them, you know, if you get thrown in prison... Don't get too used to that prison food. Don't start finding comfort in it. Find your comfort and your strength in God. Because we would, anywhere we'd be. And for some of those people, maybe prison food would be better than what they had. Seek the bread that comes from above, that gives life. We must find our comfort and our confidence in God and not in familiar programs. And lastly, and I think this is the most difficult one, this is the toughie. After the exchange with the rich young ruler, Peter came to Jesus with a statement directly after the exchange and he said, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now and in the present present age. I'm sorry, that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now some people read these words and they say, well that was for the apostles. That was for the apostles. 
He was just saying that for Peter and the guys. And other people look at these words and they say, well, that's for the pastors and the missionaries. That's for their benefit, you know, because they move to other places and they live in other cities and other countries. That's for their benefit. But if you look at the text, you'll see that he's referring to those who would follow him. Particularly in the context of the rich young ruler who would not follow him. It's for those who would follow Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are to follow him. You're to take up your cross daily, as it says in Luke, and follow him. To follow Jesus, we all leave something or someone. At first, when we turn and follow Jesus, we find ourselves being distanced from people and places that pull us away from Christ because they encourage us to sin. So at first, when we're following Christ, we're removed from people and places that have encouraged us to sin. Later, however, even the good things and the godly persons are left behind for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. Now, how is that? Well, you live here in Bloomington, and you don't have to move out of Bloomington for this to be true. You don't even have to move out of your house. Over the course of my ministry, I have had so many brothers and sisters and mothers and children given to me by God that I could easily just gather them around me in a good place and insulate myself with them. And that would be wonderful. I'd have this wonderful place where I would just be hanging around with those uh, friends, those fellow believers, particularly the ones who don't stress me out, the ones who are fun to be with. And I could hang around with those people and that would be, that's all I need. Very comfortable, don't you think? For the sake of Christ and the gospel, we set aside the temporary good for the eternal good. You know, at the risk of getting myself in trouble, what is wrong with those home fellowship groups anyway? What's wrong with those things? Aren't those things annoying? First, we started having them eight months ago, and we had to all stop coming on Sunday night and go out into all these different houses and start meeting together and get to know people, and some of the people I didn't know. That was annoying. It wasn't very comfortable. And now I've been going to this thing for six months and eight months, and Dave Carell's coming to me and saying, you know what, you ought to go and start another home fellowship group because there are people out there who don't have any spiritual family. Or you ought to go and help this home fellowship group over here because they're languishing a little bit. They're having some difficulty. And you're a strong Christian. You could help them out a great deal if you would be there to encourage them. Just when we get comfortable with ourselves, we realize that for Christ's sake and for the sake of the Gospel, I or you should be sent by the group somewhere else so that we could encourage those who are weak or provide family for those who don't have it. And so I go, or you go, and guess what you've just done? 
You've left brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. You see? If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We do this because we have a hope for another life. And it's a hope that we want others to share. And you can make this application about people and trusting in people and finding comfort in people to every area of ministry in our church. Everything that we do, from the sound system to the the greeters and ushers, to the deacons, to the lawn mowing, everything we do, we sacrifice something in order to do it. And do we make that sacrifice for the sake of Christ and for His Gospel? Or do we make it grudgingly? Because after all, somebody has to do it. I want to close today and read, uh, read Psalm 20. If you notice through the liturgy this morning, the theme that was running through there, and it was just beautiful, how God providentially arranged it. We, we did the call to worship the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. We sang, Praise God, ye servants of the Lord. On whom but God can we rely? The Lord our God who reigns on high. We had a prayer of response. And the prayer of response was, His loving kindness is everlasting. We sang from all that dwell below the skies. And the words, Eternal are your mercies, Lord. Eternal are your mercies. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father. Our assurance of pardon. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. Our last song in the liturgy this morning. I will trust in you, my hope and my help. O faithful God, my faithful God, you lift me up You uphold my cause. Is our confidence and comfort in God? Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May He send you help from the sanctuary and support from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. They have bowed down and fallen. But we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord. May the King answer us in the day we call. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look to you this morning and ask.